Thank you for joining us. Two topics again today, dealing with uh, some legal issues. Firstly, related to a forged will. Alicia Kuzak will talk to us about that. And then secondly, Rijo Marakala will uh, discuss a very interesting case dealing with a dispute between uh, neighbours and specifically the noise uh, that the neighbour complained about related to a call for prayers. So please uh, stay tuned for the two discussions. My name is Falker Kruger. You're listening to Confounder for Legal News here on Waterberg Stereo. I ask uh, Alicia Kuzak from our offices to look into maybe one or two cases that might give us some um, background in respect of the relevant legal principles and what has to be proven, etc., where someone wants to attack the validity of a will. Now, the background for this discussion is, of course, the claims of certain family members of King Goodwill Zwilatini that his will was forged and is therefore not valid and enforceable. There are various reports in the press about that, and we'll uh, obviously keep an eye on that and see how that develops. That can obviously still take quite a while before there will be an outcome on that dispute. Obviously, we don't have any first-hand um, knowledge or facts on what happened in that case and what exactly the dispute is about. We're just reading uh, the, the reports in the press as well as I suppose our listeners are doing um, also. But what we thought might be interesting is just to have a look at uh, one or two cases. And I think uh, Alicia found two cases that one can maybe have a look at and uh, see how it works if someone attacks the validity of a will. Now, obviously, it's not that simple to, to resolve such a dispute because the person that signed the document or that uh, was purported to sign the document is no longer there to testify. He's passed away or she's passed away. So, um, yeah, if you look at the court cases, I think it's fair to say that um, at uh, a, a certain stage uh, a number of years ago, most uh, cases dealt with forgery of either the document as such or of uh, the signature. But these days, I think, because most rules are obviously typed and printed, uh, the allegation that there was a forgery of the signature is more prevalent if you look at the relevant uh, case law as well. So, uh, yeah, Alicia, thanks for joining us. And maybe for starters, for the sake of our listeners, you can explain to us what has to be proven if you indeed want to attack the validity of the will. Hi, sir. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, naturally, the thing that has to be proven is forgery. So, essentially, it has to be shown that someone is attempting to pass off a will or a document that they created or signed as the last will and testament of another person. So, when a person makes an allegation like that, um, as with all civil cases, the onus rests on the person who is making the allegation to prove the allegation. So in Afrikaans, we always like to say, um, so um, the standard of proof in this case will be the same as with all civil matters, being um, a balance of probabilities. 
So a balance of probabilities essentially just means that the plaintiff has to prove that there is at least a 51% likelihood um, that their version of events is the truth. Um, so in other words, if the plaintiff can establish that there is a 51% pro probability at the very least that the will, the signature has been forged, then the court should find in their favor. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, in South Africa, the allegation that was made in respect of King's Valentini's will um, is definitely not a novel one. Um, as you said, um, we'll refer to at least two cases in South Africa. And I think um, the thing with forgery is it has a way of like popping up either where the assets on the line are extremely large, as will be in King's Valentini's case, or where a beneficiary is especially disgruntled because they are unexpectedly excluded from a will. So this will be the case, um, and it's actually an example of the first case that we'll refer to, where a child is unexpectedly excluded. So some siblings inherit and some do not. So um, the first case that we can refer to is a Durban High Court case of 2000 um, known as Pillay versus Nagin. So what happened in this case was that the deceased had six children. Um, three of them acted as plaintiffs in the matter and three of them acted as defendants in the matter. And essentially it was alleged that the first defendant had forged their mother's signature on a will. Um, so therefore it was their contention that the deceased had actually died without a will since this will was, um, should have been invalid. So in terms of this will, the first defendant would have been the sole beneficiary of the, state, of the estate, which included a house in Chatsworth. Um, the will did, however, provide that if he decided to sell this house, he would have to share the profits thereof with two other siblings, so two of his brothers. So um, he would be the sole beneficiary. Two of his brothers would maybe be, you know, gain some benefit and three of the siblings were completely excluded. So um, to prove their case, the, ballot, uh, the plaintiffs decided not to rely on e any expert evidence or anything like that. They just uh, relied on their own testimony. So each party told their version of events. And the plaintiff's version of events was um, essentially that the second plaintiff saw the will and went to the first plaintiff and told him that the signature looked odd to him. He thought that it had been for forged. The first plaintiff was the eldest sibling. He was uh, the big brother. And he decided to call a family meeting so that they could discuss this matter. At the family meeting, the first plaintiff asked the first defendant whether they knew why the meeting had been called. And the first defendant then said that he knew what he did was wrong. Uh, when they asked him to elaborate on what he meant by that, he just said that um, he had forged the will, something along those lines. He admitted to forging the will. So the siblings then the timeline is a bit unclear. So it's not exactly clear whether it was the same day or the next day, but they then got the first defendant to actually sign the will and he signed his initials and said, I accept this will to be invalid. 
Um, so under cross-examination, the defendant didn't challenge any of this evidence. So it wasn't, you know, at any time put to the plaintiffs that their version of events wasn't true. Um, so the court therefore accepted this evidence and they actually noted that the first plaintiff was a very credible witness in their opinion. Um, on the other hand, they described the defendant on the stage as being an appalling witness. They said that his testimony was contradictory, uh, unconvincing and evasive. So at the end of the day, on a balance of probabilities, they decided that the plaintiff's version of events was more probable. Um, they then concluded that the will was invalid as it had been forged and it was ordered that the deceased estate should be uh, divided according to the interstate law of succession. Very interesting uh, indeed, yeah. So, yeah, a good illustration, I guess, also of how a court sometimes has to simply have a look at the evidence based on what the witnesses testify and then decide who is the more credible one and who not. And, um, yeah, well, if the interstate, so, so there wasn't a surviving spouse. Now the interstate law of succession applied, so the, the, the children would, in principle, all be entitled to inherit. But, but I guess the defendant... Uh, you said she, uh, the defendant wasn't allowed to inherit, no? So um, this was actually an argument that was raised by the plaintiffs. They said that, well, since the de the first defendant specifically, since the first defendant had forged the will, um, he should be considered unworthy to inherit. Okay. Um, and this is not an uh, uncommon um, concept in our law. Uh, one of the most common examples of people who are unworthy to inherit are those that fall under the Bludacher Hand maxim. So yes. these are people who either cause or contribute to the death of the deceased are not allowed to inherit from them. Um, but then the court noted that this was not the only class of people who were unworthy in our history, especially referring to Roman Dutch law. There were many people who were regarded to be unworthy um, of inheriting. And specifically, they referred to Roman Dutrite Foot. And he said that persons who hide a will in order to deprive a legatee from inheriting should be considered unworthy. Um, so the court then said, well, this principle can be extended and applied in this case because the goal of the first defendant was to deprive his siblings of an inheritance. Um, from the testimony of both the plaintiffs and the defendant at the end of the day, it um, looked like the first defendant had only included himself and those two brothers in the will because he considered them to be in financial need of us uh, to be in need of financial assistance. His other siblings he considered to be financially stable. Um, so at the end of the day, the court said that the first defendant was unworthy of an inheritance, and his portion of the interstate inheritance was then divided amongst his siblings. Yeah, that was actually my next question. Yeah, okay, makes sense. So um, obviously it all backfired on the defendant. Instead of inheriting everything in terms of the will, he uh, lost uh, the inheritance and uh, his siblings uh, got everything. All right. Um, yeah, the next one I see here on the notes uh, that you sent me, Alicia, is the Mulefi against the Schlapuk case 2013. Uh, what happened there? 
So I think why I think um, it was important for us to discuss both cases is because in the Palais case, they very much relied on the testimony of the children. You know, um, they relied on what they um, spoke w to the deceased about their intentions with the will, and then obviously their interactions with the uh, first defendant. Um, the Malefi case is actually almost the opposite thereof. In this case, the plaintiff uh, relied solely on expert evidence. Um, so just to briefly set out the facts of the case. So in this case, the plaintiff accused the first defendant of forging their aunt's will. So um, in two 2006, the deceased being the aunt, had concluded a will in which the first defendant was nominated as the sole beneficiary of the estate. Then, in 2008, the aunt revoked that will and concluded a new will in terms of which the plaintiff would be the sole beneficiary of the estate. That The will that was in contention was actually a third will that was concluded in June of 2008, in which the first defendant was again nominated as the sole beneficiary. So, so in regards to this, well, the plaintiff alleged that the first defendant had forged the on signature. So um, to prove that case, what the plaintiff did is they relied on um, the evidence given by a handwriting expert and evidence given by a doctor. So the handwriting expert came before the court and he highlighted the differences between the signature on the contested will and the previous signatures of the deceased. So he showed the court the differences and then he said to them, in his expert opinion, the signature had been forged. Um, and then the evidence of the doctor was that at the time that the third will had been concluded, the deceased was actually at a very advanced stage of dementia. And therefore, it was the doctor's opinion that they would not have had the capacity to conclude a valid will. Um, the first defendant, on the other hand, when... Uh, he attempted to rebut this evidence, didn't call any experts. They merely relied on their own testimony. And their testimony was that their aunt had called them and asked them to help them conclude a new will and that they did so during July of uh, 2008. But on a balance of probabilities, the court accepted the plaintiff's version of events as being more probable and then concluded that the will have, uh, had been forged. All right. So um, would you say the, the, the expert um, made the difference, uh, his testimony, um, or, or does it carry more weight, would you say, than any other witnesses? No. So actually what the court did is they, uh, when they were weighing up the evidence, they referred to a 1984 court case in which it was noted that direct and credible evidence should generally carry more weight than expert evidence. So um, this case specifically when, uh, was about a car crash, and it's actually a good example. So what the court's essentially saying, if someone comes forward and they say they viewed the car crash, they saw this car hitting that car at this angle, whatever the case may be, that evidence should be... Um, accepted or carry more weight than, say, a physicist expert uh, who comes forward and says, no, it's their expert opinion that the car, uh, you know, hit the other vehicle at this angle or couldn't have caused that much damage or whatever the case may be. But um, the important thing to note is it must be a credible witness. 
So in this case, the court said that the defendant's version of events was so improbable that the very credibility and reliability of the evidence had been affected. And it was for that reason alone that the first defendant's evidence was completely rejected and that they decided that the plaintiff's um, expert evidence and the plaintiff's version of events was more reliable and therefore more probable. All right. So, um, yeah, in both cases, um, they were successful eh, to prove um, that there was forgery. Um, obviously, that has then far-reaching consequences. For example, the Belay case, as we said before, the relevant um, person was not, the, the son was not entitled to inherit at all. Um, but what about... Um, the criminal law, is it also a criminal offence to, to falsify a document or a will? Uh, yes, absolutely. So um, what people should bear in mind is that in terms of Section 102, subsection 1 of the Administration of Estates Act, forging a will is a criminal offence. So therefore, the consequences of forging a will will not necessarily only be being excluded from an inheritance, um, but might be a fine or I'm not sure if it's a fine or imprisonment, but I mean, at the very least, it could be a criminal record. So maybe that should be borne in mind. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, uh, Alicia. I think that's interesting and uh, gives us uh, some idea what uh, might happen um, in the um, uh, case about the will of uh, uh, King Goodwill Zvedatini. So it will be interesting certainty, certainly to, to follow that uh, as well. My name is Volker Kruger. You're listening to Van Fern Duffy Legal News here on Waterberg Stereo. Rico Maracala has joined us today. Our listeners, regular listeners, would know him by now. And yeah, I asked uh, Rico to look at a recent interesting case dealing with the freedom of religion, property rights, and specifically the call to prayer. And the question that was answered in this court case. I believe, was whether a homeowner can successfully sue to silence Muslim calls to prayer coming from a neighboring property. Am I right, Rico? That's what the court had to uh, deal uh, with. Uh, and yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Um, well, neighbor law, it's a little bit something of uh, issues that always find themselves uh, appearing before either the magistrate's court or the high court when a particular property owner does not really, well, I wouldn't say like, but um, certain conduct that is uh, being made or rather exhibited by a particular neighbor, um, they feel uncomfortable with it and they try to mediate the matter between themselves. But unfortunately, um, it leads to one particular property owner approaching to the high court for appropriate relief. And that is exactly what transpired in this matter, but on different circumstances, uh, Volker. Okay. So maybe you can give us uh, more details in, uh, in terms of the facts that the court had to decide on? Mm, yes, um, this is a, a judgment. Um, I'm led to believe by perusing through it. Um, it came before the court in 2019, but however, judgment again was given uh, so recently. Um, so what happened here, it was the applicant, Chandra, um, who quite interestingly enough uh, represented himself. Um, in the High Court. And this was against uh, Madarasa. Um, it's a Muslim uh, uh, 
School of uh, of Religion practice, um, which was located uh, opposite uh, Chandra's uh, property. Now, he approached the High Court seeking two things from the High Court. Now, the first one was to stop the Madarasa call to prayer, the Muslim call to prayer, from being so audible enough that it extended to her house. You know, she was complaining, saying that the call to prayer, when it plays around five times during the day and sometimes within odd hours, and she was saying, but these are infringing my property rights, you know, to have undisturbed use and enjoyment of my property. And the second relief uh, that was sought by him was that he wanted the Madarasa uh, to stop its operations in totality and that its property be sold to the government or a non-Muslim entity. Now, in the the matter, um, the municipality was cited. Um, I'm assuming that this was on the basis of their interest because uh, previously the, the Madarasa had approached uh, the municipality to have an approval of a cluster residential development uh, license, uh, of which the municipality then granted it uh, to the Madarasa. However, the municipality, for them, insofar as these proceedings were concerned, they never partook in the uh, proceedings. Um, but however, they just abided by whatever uh, conclusion that the court will come into. Now, being confronted with all these issues, I, again, as I had previously mentioned, is was that Master Chandra was saying that, you know what, your rights that you are exercising by making these bells and call to prayer that um, I think some of our listeners might have come across uh, the, the, the call to prayer. Um, she He was busy complaining, saying that um, it's too loud. You know, sometimes these this call to prayer is in odd hours and, you know, he cannot basically enjoy the undisturbed use and enjoyment of her property. Now, on the other hand, the Madarasa was saying that, I mean, they have a right that is guaranteed to them in terms of the constitution, um, and that is the right to religious practices. Now, obviously, a court confronted with these particular two types of uh, approaches uh, or issues that are being raised. Now, well, first of all, I think our listeners will appreciate the fact that um, both these rights, you know, the right to property, the right to enjoyment and, and freedom and so forth, these are both rights that are protected by our constitution and they should also then and they are also subject to a limitation clause. Um, and that is in terms of section thirty six of the constitution, but only to that extent that such a limitation is reasonable and justifiable in an open and democratic society that is not only based on human dignity, but equality and freedom. So now the court was 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 um, uh, confronted with those particular two issues, and they had to weigh up um, whose rights can actually be subjected to a limitation, um, but not necessarily a limitation, but what appropriate order or remedy can the High Court order when there's two uh, particular people who are saying that we both have our rights and these rights are protected in the Constitution? So they had to weigh up all the rights, you know, as, as per the papers that were before it and the arguments that were leveled before the court. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, so what did the court find? Who was successful? Uh, can you tell us? Yes. Um, the applicant, Mr. Chandra, was partially uh, successful. Um, the reason why I say partially successful is that the court were able to 
sort of like what the constitutional court has always been saying that when when high courts are confronted with a particular matter of such nature they should try by all means necessary to formulate an order that will be in the interest of both parties you know it's called the intelligent uh, intelligent order um, and what they did the court found that you know what the madarasa um, the call to prayer, they must take certain uh, steps to ensure that the, the call to prayer is not to such an extent that um, it can be able to, um, Mr. Mr. Chandra can be able to hear it in his property. But with regards to the second relief, uh, the court uh, just summarily dismissed that particular uh, viewpoint because now that would have been a very harsh order. And under what circumstances will a court actually be endowed with that power? Um, in other words, the reasoning of a court saying that, you know what, stop the call to prayer and the property that you have bought um, from whoever um, is now going to be sold to the government or a non-Muslim entity. Now, that would have actually, uh, if such an order was granted, it would have been appealed. Um, and even might end up in the Supreme Court of Appeal and also thereafter the Constitutional Court, depending what um, the Supreme Court of Appeal would have held. So th it was a very clever balancing of rights, what happened in this court, and I applaud the court for that. You know, uh, to a certain extent, they did not limit the, 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 the Madarasa uh, to such a great extent. They just said, please reduce your sound. Um, but at the same time, we, we, we want to ensure that the rights that are enjoyed by other neighbor, uh, the right to have undisturbed and, um, and peaceful enjoyment to their property, it's limited. They, she or he won't be able to be, um, to be affected by the call to prayer. And at the second time, they say that, but you can still proceed with your call to prayer. Just limit the audibility of that uh, call to prayer. I think had he used a lawyer, the lawyer would have advised him not to bring that second part of the application because, yeah, obviously that would never uh, succeed. Um, but yeah, interesting to know that the first part then was indeed successful without him using a lawyer. And I guess it's another indication of, yeah, as you said, the balancing act no? that the courts often try to apply where there are disputes between uh, neighbors and reasonableness, I guess often is the overriding criteria that is used. Uh, in Afrikaans, they say lief and lad lief. No? Both uh, uh, neighbors should have the opportunity to exercise their rights, but uh, within reason, within uh, or with respect to the neighbor's uh, rights as, as well. Would you sort of agree that that is sort of the approach that uh, the courts would normally take on disputes between neighbors? Most definitely. There's this also other saying that, you know, your rights are limited to such an extent that your arm cannot touch the other person's notes. So that's where your rights uh, ends, you know. You cannot go beyond that. So, yeah, I most definitely agree with that saying. Okay. All right. So that was the outcome. So the, the, they were indeed ordered to, to reduce uh, the, the, the volume, no? to make sure that uh, there is not unreasonable inconvenience uh, for the applicant uh, when uh, when uh, using the property. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week Wednesday between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock and then also on Friday evenings.